And welcome into the round table where we'll keep things on the ocean and hopefully we won't have a situation like that to deal with. Uh, Bill Priestley here with you and we're gonna talk a little bit about maritime shipping and the situation that they find themselves in at this particular point in a couple of different areas as well. Joining us to talk about it, we've got Dr. Salma Cagliano, who joins us as the Associate Professor of History at Campbell University, and then the Maritime Professor, Lauren Beek, and also joining us uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here for this discussion. And we wanna talk about the main story that came out uh, late yesterday, which of course was Bed Bath & Beyond going very interestingly up against OCL in trying to either recur damages or pick up somewhere around $31 million in that respective uh, thing. They put their their suit down about uh, three or four weeks ago, and OCL came back yesterday with their response. Lauren, you had a chance to look at those, and uh, this is a very interesting case, and maybe one that's, that that might get to a judgment before uh, before any of those in this in this uh, kind of of detail. Sure. So yeah. Um. So the the parties involved are Bed Bath and Beyond, which notably filed for bankruptcy just a few weeks ago. So this was interesting to see. Uh, it, it hit the the complaints process, and they're they're filing suit against OOCL. So that's Orient Overseas Container Line, which is a member of the Ocean Alliance. Um, but interesting about OOCL, uh, just notable, um, they are a controlled carrier, meaning that they are majority owned or controlled by a foreign government. So they're not allowed to drop their rates on less than thirty days' notice. Just a little anecdote for the side. Uh, but this is a really interesting case because it hinges on minimum quantity commitments and whether the FMC has that jurisdiction. And like you said, we might see a determination on jurisdiction earlier than we otherwise would. Typically, cases at the FMC can take a year or more to go through. Um, but sometimes when it hinges on jurisdictional questions, they're going to answer that question early just to say, we do have jurisdiction. We will be reviewing this. Yeah, Sal, uh, looking at this from an F FMC perspective, what do you think they're going to call in terms of do they have the right to, to rule on this sort of a case? Well, I mean, it's interesting to see how Bed Bath & Beyond and OCL are looking at this. OCL has come out and basically argued, going back to the Shipping Act of 1916 and running through the 1984 and the 1998 iteration, saying that there is no jurisdiction that the FMC has on this, that they have basically lost that jurisdiction. And that, I think, is the interesting argument here. We just saw yesterday in the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Dusty Johnson's uh, new proposed Ocean sh Shipping uh, uh, Reform Act coming through, and which would em empower the FMC with more authority. As a matter of fact, Representative Garamendi made the point of discussing the fact that the FMC needs the the ability to be able to make judgments much like other regulatory bodies can without it having to go to court. So I think OOCL is really one of the very first carriers we're seeing throwing the gauntlet down to really test the powers of the Federal Maritime Commission under the current laws right now. And again, what we're in is a period of flux here with how laws are changing and evolving. Lauren, there's no precedent for this, right? I mean, this is this is the first kind of case where we've seen a retailer sue a shipper in this sort of, or a carrier, excuse me, in this sort of way. Well, so we've seen some attempts, and and certainly with the with COVID and and all the craziness that was happening with COVID, these are a novel series of cases coming through. Um, the the other attempt that I'm talking about is the MCS versus MSC case, which is still kind of in like a legal procedural um, gray zone. There, there, it's it's being kind of finessed out on, on legal procedure. Like I said, it, it, it's stuck in discovery. Um, that was another case on the minimum quantity commitments, which talks about how many 
TEUs or FEUs, basically how many boxes the, the two parties are going to be agreeing to in their service contract, which is filed with the FMC, whether that is a term that can now be a breach of contract. And so if it's a breach of contract, it usually gets kicked out of the FMC for not being part of their jurisdiction. And that's what OOCL is arguing here. But what what MCS and, and what Bed Bath & Beyond are arguing here is that this is a service contract violation or something along the lines of a um, a Shipping Act violation, which would then keep it in the FMC. So that is where the novelty comes, is, is this a service contract violation and is that enforceable? And so that's going to be really novel, along with the jurisdictional questions that Dr. Sal McCragliano just mentioned. Sal, let me go back to you just a little bit on that respect. If uh, Moving past jurisdiction in terms of who has the ability to rule on on this kind of case. If Bed Bath & Beyond were successful in this, how does that change things for carriers uh, knowing that they're not that type of, of, legal, of excuse me, legislation or even uh, court battles? So, I, I mean, one of the running jokes in, in ocean shipping is, is you know, shipping agreements are worth the fax paper they're printed on. Uh, <laughs> and, and you can basically toss them out. And, and this is really raising that question is whether or not that OCL had to honor their their agreement in the past. You know, and, and let's be clear, it's gone both ways. Both shipper and carrier have broken these agreements to go get better rates and better agreements at time. But now you have the FMC intervening here and saying, OK, you have to honor this. And, and what's more important is Bed Bath & Beyond is, is, is going beyond the point here and basically arguing that their bankruptcy is in the hands of OOCL, a Hong Kong based uh, shipping firm that, as Lauren mentioned, you know, is basically state owned. And so, I mean, this has the potential not just for jurisdiction on a bankruptcy case, but also whether or not a foreign government had a role in the bankruptcy of a U.S. corporation. So this has a myriad of potential problems here. I, I do have a question about the total amount being involved here and whether or not Bed Bath & Beyond really has the stature to sit there and say the bankruptcy was caused by this. Uh, because, again, that amount, which is in several million dollars here, may not be just enough to justify the bankruptcy. The question here is what other issues were underlying the bankruptcy. Yeah, Lauren, just to wrap this up in terms of, I mean, obviously, does the bankruptcy make this even more of, a, of, an, of an argument for Bed Bath & Beyond, the fact that it looks like this may have contributed to the, the company's ultimate demise? Or at, so least that, perhaps, or at least going to bankruptcy. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, perhaps. But really, I mean, the bankruptcy is not part of the Shipping Act, right? And so the FMC right. is very, very kind of keenly interested in Shipping Act violations. There is a sister uh, case being brought that's in the one point something billion dollar range um, that's in the Southern District of New York. So that is probably going to be a little bit more of a breach of contract. So they're almost... A, kind of understanding and, and saying that we see the FMC is the service contract shipping act violation, but that's not to say we didn't actually have a breach of contract violation. And they're preemptively putting that outside of the FMC. This is going to be really interesting to see how it comes out. I think both sides have have appropriately and and maybe expectedly laid out their arguments of what you would expect to to the arguments to be. Um, and and we'll just see how the FMC takes it. This is going to be a, a marquee case and that it will probably provide some clarity in the otherwise gray area of, of these service contracts. It's going to be interesting to follow there as well. So switching from the courtroom 
to the negotiating table. Uh, there's a subject that we haven't talked about very much is the ILWU and the situation that they are in at this point right now uh, out west with their negotiations. We're coming up on, I think, uh, we're five weeks away from a year uh, past the deadline that they were looking at to try and to getting a deal done. And we had a roundtable not too long ago about uh, this subject and others in terms of labor negotiations. And both of our, our guests said that uh, the ILWU certainly has missed the mark in terms of getting the best deal they possibly could. Sal, as you look at this situation, again, 50, 50 weeks uh, separated from a possible deadline uh, that could have been a year ago. What do you know and what can what what should we expect uh, as this uh, this seems to be yeah, I'm hearing I'm hearing from a lot of people who are involved in these negotiations, and, and it seems like they're making way. And, it, and this would have been really nice a year ago to be at this point yeah. where they're at. But at the same time, we're also learning about potential hurdles coming in here, and there still have the base issues that are out there. And the fundamental base issue is going to be this automation issue: is the union, the ILWU, wants to ensure that its workers have employment and most importantly, its retirees have the background to be able to get their retirement. Whereas the PMA is still dealing with the issue that the latest slate of reports came in showing productivity of ports around the world. And, you know, thank God LA and Long Beach aren't at the bottom anymore. They're just five or six from the bottom anymore. So they really haven't progressed. But at the same time, we're seeing cargo shift back to the West Coast a little bit. And I think one of the things we're seeing is carriers are basically diversifying where their cargo is coming in. If I was Los Angeles, Long Beach and the West Coast ports, I wouldn't be popping champagne over this yet because at any moment these talks can break down. And literally, I'm not sure the union has anything left to lose at this point to really creating work stoppages at this, you know, in this area. Lauren, when you look at the situation, what stands out to you is from, certainly from a legal perspective, but just trying to get this deal done so that we can return to quote unquote normal, if you will. Yeah, I mean, the longer it goes, if if challenges come up, it's it's what what kind of rules the discussion, what rules the 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 um, partnership here um, without this contract in place, without any contract in place, you could say, well, maybe the old contract is is flowing over, but it leaves you in this legal gray area as well. And and we don't really love being in legal gray areas. So <laughs> I'm hopeful that this really does get get solved quickly. Um, but but as Sal said, that you know, it's it's probably just as stressed as it's always been, but there are some glimmers of light coming through. So hopefully it'll start moving along, but I don't know, it's it's hard to say. How much, uh, Sal, is, have you heard, from what you've heard from various sources, I mean, is is this, is there reason to be very optimistic or is there reason to be very pessimistic in terms of the optimism as most people like to say, hey, it looks good, when in fact it looks like terrible? Well, I, I mean, they're talking and they're hammering out the agreements. And there's okay. a lot of facets to this. Again, you're dealing with 28 ports. You're dealing with a lot of moving parts here. And so the good thing is, is they're making that progress. Again, you have to go back to the issue is would they have been in a better position to negotiate this a year ago versus right now? And I think that's the other element here. What's, you know, who's in favor of prolonging this longer? Is it labor? Is it the PMA? Who's going to get the better deal here? And the the problem you have here is always the sort of Damocles that if one or one side or the other 
throws up a, a roadblock, what happens to that disruption on the West Coast? Do we go back to 2014, 2015? Now, there are different factors at play here. We see cargo moving differently. You know, we got cargo moving through the, the Panama Canal, but Panama Canal just announced they got really low water levels right now, and they may have to curtail the amount of ships and cargo coming through the Panama Canal. So does that put West Coast labor back in the driver's seat? There's so many factors here. It's really hard to see. All we know is they need to come up with an agreement sooner rather than later. Always changes month to month, season to season. And uh, obviously, hopefully we see a, an agreement in the not too distant future. Sal and Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to talk to you both. Thanks for great having to us. be here. All right, we will take a short break and come back and wrap up this edition of Fruit Waves now after this. <laughs> 